So you know, uh, really for centuries, men and women have tried to figure out the nature of humanity. What makes us tick? What makes us who we are? And who are we? And as you probably figured out by now, the humanistic picture of the world is that man is all good. And if he's just given the right environment, everything will be great. And of course, that's not really the message of the Bible. But the Apostle Paul has given us a great look at human nature. And in the passage we're going to look at today, which is in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about who we were before we came to Christ, and then what God did for us, and then what we're made for after we come to Christ. So if you want to turn over there to Philippians, I mean to Ephesians 2, let's start with the first three verses. And Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul never pulls any punches. He's very blunt. And he tells us, first of all, that we were dead. We were spiritually dead, dead in our sins. And the Old Testament tracks that for us as we see Adam sinning in the garden, Adam and Eve, and being cast out of the garden. God had said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And they did, and God kept his word, and death came into mankind and has followed us ever since uh, that time. Uh, Romans, obviously, uh, 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, again, meaning spiritual death. It, it, it's funny, in a way, our, our uh, current culture in America is so obsessed with zombies. So there, there's a, lots of zombie shows out there. Now, I'm hoping that if we ever do have zombies, they're those slow zombies and not the fast zombies. Otherwise, I'm doomed. But because I'm not going to be able to outrun them. Um, but we're kind of dead men walking, aren't we? we? We are dead men and women walking because we are spiritually dead uh, if we are not in Christ. And then he tells us that when we were in that state, we were following the world. And in the New Testament, that word world normally means uh, the mass of humanity opposed to God and the structures of humanity opposed to God. And so the world is out there and it opposes God. And we'll see in the gospels, even when Christ was there, the religious establishment opposed him because they had their own system set up and they did not want to lose control of it. And today we see, obviously, I think everywhere around us, the world in rebellion against God. And in fact, so much so that some people believe that uh, they need to protect the world from Christians because we're dangerous, because we're telling them, here is the way God says to live. Here is the way God says who you are. And they don't want that because they're in rebellion and they want to say uh, who they are, uh, even if they really can't change that reality. And then even worse, he says, you're following the devil. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I probably would have found that offensive uh, in my early life if you told me I was following the devil. But what do we know about the devil? Well, we know the devil was a high angel at one time, and he got prideful, and he sinned, and he rebelled against God, and he took other angels with him that we now usually refer to as demons or evil spirits. So he's the father, if you will, of rebellion, the author of rebellion, the beginning of rebellion. And so when we follow him in rebellion to God, we are following Satan, as alarming as that sounds. Now, you may not want to tell your friends that over coffee this week. Maybe approach it a little more gently, but it's the truth. Uh, you follow God or you follow Satan. And, and Satan is always at work trying to corrupt the things of God, trying to lead us away from God, trying to convince us God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, that he's mean and curmudgeonly, and, and you should be entitled to be your own God and decide exactly what it is you want to do and what you want to be. And he says, we, we live for the passions of the flesh, the desires of body and mind. And, and to me, this is, in a capsule, modern-day America, living for the flesh. And uh, I have to say, I blame my generation for starting this. Now, all you innocent college students down there, I love you, uh, but my guys started this mess. We get credit for it, if you will, to blame. We had this sexual revolution. We had the breakdown of the family. We had all these things because we were in rebellion against our parents and their values of the 50s. And we wanted to break that down. We wanted to do what we wanted to do. And, and sometimes that would just grow your hair out shoulder length. And yes, I know you can't tell from looking at me now, but yes, I did. And, and we, you know, every generation has this rebellion. Uh, and, and so maybe now it's tattoos and piercings, but we were long hairs and bell-bottom jeans and um, beads, for example, and peace symbols. And you can... Just imagine my poor wife's husband, the army veteran, when I showed up at the door with a guitar, bell-bottom jeans, shoulder-length hair, and flowery shirts, how that went. And he saw that as my rebellion against tradition and what the moral values were at the time. Now, I was a fashion hippie, don't get me wrong. I didn't do drugs, but you know, I did play in bands and roll my hair out and do all that thing. And so he was correct. Though we were rebelling in our own way, and, and I was rebelling. And um, people took drugs. You know, you've heard of the free love movement, what really was the free sex movement. There wasn't a lot of love involved in it. And today, that's just spiraled. Now, where there really are no closed doors, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. And if you try to set them, then, you know, you're doing wrong. You're, you're hurting people's feelings, and you're dangerous to them. But the last phrase he uses here is one that will get you even more because he says, we were children of wrath. So what is wrath? Well, you know, it doesn't say we're children of the mildly perturbed or, or the slightly agitated or uh, aggravated. Um, wrath is a fierce anger. Uh, and you see that in some of the Old Testament stories when Israel would rebel and plagues would break out and fires would break out against them. And sometimes it would even say the Lord broke out against them. And that was him 
exercising his wrath, both as punishment and to bring them back into being faithful to their covenant. <clears throat> so where else have we seen wrath in the Bible? Just in case you don't believe of it. Well, you see it starting in chapter three of Genesis, don't you? When Adam and Eve rebel, what happens to them? Well, God doesn't say, oh, Adam, seriously, I wish you hadn't done that. Or, you know, Eve, you're going into timeout or anything like that. He kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And the word there is thrust. He thrust them out of the garden. He, you know, forcibly ejected them from the garden. And he sent them into a world with thorns uh, where working the ground was painful and difficult. A, a world where the woman now gave birth uh, in pain, he says. And, and where they were in shame. You know, they, they ran around naked in the garden and were unashamed. Immediately when they sinned, they have shame. And, and so God's wrath was expressed there. It was later in the time of Noah expressed with a flood. And God says, Every thought of, of man was only evil all the time. So just from that time of Adam to Noah, things had degenerated so much that people were just evil and that's all they thought of. You know, it's interesting, I don't know if you're a chart person, I kind of am, if all those generations in Genesis are literal, father to son, father to son, father to son, Noah, could have met Adam. Now, I don't know if, those, if there's gaps in there, and I suspect they were, but you see the shortness of time there uh, that everything just goes to pot. So we see God destroy Sodom and that whole area with sulfur, and you can still find little black stones there that you can light a match to and will burn because they have sulfur in them. God, just like he did with Adam and Eve, he thrust Israel out of the promised land when they violated the covenant and sent them into exile. And then if you flip over there to the very end of your Bible, what do you see in Revelation 21? All those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrust into the lake of fire. That's an unimaginable horror, isn't it? Uh, but that is the ultimate expression of God's wrath against sin. And, and Paul says, you know, he's talking to mostly believers there, but he said, you are like the rest of mankind. This was you before you came to Christ. And it's the same today, all you in the pew, that's who you were before you came to Christ. Now that's a hard one if you grew up in church. So how many of you guys grew up in a Baptist church? Okay, a per, pretty fair number. So uh, I did in little West Texas towns and uh, went to church in a suit at six weeks old. And, uh, and you know, a little short suit. And uh, somebody has a picture somewhere they blackmail me with. Uh, and, and I got taught about Jesus my whole life until I was nine years old. And at that famous Thursday vacation Bible school evangelism event, I got convicted of my sin. In fact, I was so convicted of my sin, I really thought that I might go to hell right there from the pew. Uh, but we, if you were to tell me all these, this is who you were, I would have had a hard time believing it because I didn't understand that because 
all I knew was Jesus. All I knew was the Baptist churches. And, you know, all we knew as friends were fellow Christians. But that's who we were. We were totally lost to God and his influence before we came to Christ. So verses four through six tell us what God did about that. And it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Those two words at the beginning of that are two of my favorite words, but God. This bleak picture of humanity uh, not knowing Christ is just overwhelmingly dark. And then he says, but God. God made us alive. We were spiritually dead. God made us spiritually alive in Christ. And you know, Lazarus was a visible example for us because he died and Jesus showed up and he called him from the grave and he restored him from death to life. And the same thing happens to us spiritually. When we come to Christ, we are dead in our sins and he raises us up out of that death and makes us alive with Christ. And that life stays forever, it's eternal. So we, we were following the devil into hell. But God raised us up to be with Christ. And he seated us in the heavenly places, it says. So as you're sitting here in the pew today, you're also seated in the heavenly places with Christ. So you should look a lot happier than you do. Because <laughs> you are not just listening to me talk, but you are seated in the heavenly places. And, and this is a, a picture of intimacy. Now, at it, it, my house, we have a... A dining table, a long dining table, and we have the family over, and we try not to kill each other and sit around at holidays, and, and there's space between us. But this picture is of Jesus basically reclining at a table like they did then, and, and they would lay on a cushion on their left arm, and, and they would reach onto the table and get food. And so if you can imagine, for example, the, the apostles the 12 of them gathered around one table with Jesus and whoever the host may be, and, and they're all kind of crammed in there next to each other. And if you remember the, the story of the Last Supper, the apostle John, who calls himself the apostle that Jesus loved, he's in effect reclining in front of Jesus and he will turn and it says he actually would rest on Jesus. They, they were so close. And, and I know in Western culture, you college boys are not gonna do that, but in that Semitic culture, that was acceptable and, and they were intimately involved in the sense of love and fellowship together. And that's the picture when he says, we're seated with Christ. It's not that he's up there far away and we're seated down here in the peanut gallery. It's that we are all close together there in intimate fellowship with him as we are seated in the heavenly places. So once we're objects of wrath, now we are objects of grace. So why did God do that? Well, I'm sorry to tell you that it wasn't because you're special. What he did it for uh, was to show that he is rich in mercy and he has great love for us. The God who created all things 
is rich in mercy, meaning he's not stingy with it. He gives us mercy in great amounts, great flowing streams of mercy that have come to us to wash away our sin. And he has a great love for us. Now, who would not want that, really? If, if you had the God that could do everything, that made everything, that could destroy everything, and he, he doesn't just like you or put up with you, he loves you with a great love. Have you followed that Jim Webb telescope any? James Webb telescope? I'm fascinated by it because I love space. And, and there's, there's a myriad of galaxies now that they have found that we didn't know about. Blank spaces we thought existed in space have millions of galaxies in them. And, and God created all that. And, and it says, in fact, that Jesus sustains all of that with the power of his right hand. And the God that made all that and sustains all that loves you and extends his great mercy to you because you are in Christ. What did you do to deserve it? Well, seven through nine tells us. He says, so then in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So what did you do to deserve it? Nothing, not a single thing, but it came to you as a result of God's grace and God's love. Now what is grace? So mercy that we talked about is mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. So you did something bad, you deserve to be punished, you don't get punished, that's mercy, okay? And, and that's what God has given us. Grace, on the other hand, is you get something that you don't deserve. And what did we not deserve? We didn't deserve fellowship with God because we were sinners in rebellion against him. We didn't deserve intimacy with Christ and fellowship with him because we were in rebellion against him. But in his grace, God sent Jesus to die for our sins and draw us to himself to believe and to be saved. He says even your own faith is the gift of God. Your ability to believe in Jesus and be saved is a gift from God out of his grace, not something you have manufactured on your own. And therefore, no one can boast about it. Now, I, I remember hearing a guy here years ago that did that. We used to have open mic night, <coughs> which is dangerous. But uh, a guy got up and said, I don't know what the big fuss is about all these testimonies. I was presented the facts. I made the right choice, and I'm proud of that. That's not how that works, right? Uh, you were given that faith to believe by Christ. It is a gift, and there's nothing for you to boast about. So now that we've come to Christ, what sort of thing are we? What are we supposed to do? What purpose do we have? And this is in verse 10. <clears throat> he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So works don't play any part in our salvation, but works are done for us, done by us, to the glory of God, 
after we have come to Christ. And God made us for that. He made us to do good works. And, and Christians throughout history have done that. We have built hospitals and orphanages and schools. Uh, we have you know, gone on mission trips to other countries, learned their languages, brought them the gospel. And on a smaller local level, we, we take food to those that are going through some sort of trauma. And you know, Baptist women are, are famous for that, even on the internet. The casserole was invented by Baptist women. And when you have a problem and you're in a church, you're gonna get a knock on the door and a Baptist woman is gonna be standing there with this long Pyrex dish covered in aluminum foil and say, I brought you dinner. Because when things go bad, Baptist women cook. It's what they do. But it's a great ministry there. And I know when my father died, well, the guy didn't cook, but he showed up with barbecue, you know, the nectar of the gods, so to speak. And, and uh, because he wanted to do something to minister to us in a time of grief. And so we, we take meals. We, we mow yards for people that are uh, hurt and can't do it. We visit the sick. Uh, we mourn with others that mourn. And, and sometimes, you know, you just go to someone's house who's lost a loved one and you just sit with them. A lot of times nobody wants to do that because you're like, well, I don't know what to say. Well, when you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just sit down and say, I'm here for you. And you sit. And sometimes having somebody else just sit with you is enough. It, it's comforting that another believer wants to be there and share your pain uh, just by being there. So God created us for good works, and, and since he recreated us uh, into these uh, participants in grace and love and mercy so that we would do good works, uh, saved people do that. And that is one thing you know that shows somebody is a Christian, that they do good works. If a person's gone through their whole life and never done any good works, you know, that kind of makes me uneasy that maybe that person never did come to believe because they have no motivation to do the good works. Uh, but people that have come to Christ and our congregation is full of people like this that find a way to do good works by ministering to others uh, in the name of Christ. Jesus himself said, I came to serve, not to be served. And that same character should flow through us when we are in Christ. So your purpose in Christ certainly is to be saved and to glorify God uh, with that. But it's not so you can sit and, and not so that you can attend a lot of marvelous Bible studies. And there's a lot of marvelous ones today. And Truthfully, nobody likes to listen to great sermon better than me. I can listen to great sermons all day long. That's not all that we're called to do. We are called to get out of the pew, go into our community and serve. Serve each other, but also serve people that aren't in the church. And, and you probably have a neighbor, and that may be the Jewish guy that lives across the street from us that my wife takes, is it challah bread? Did I say that right? Challah bread too, which I guess is a Jewish thing. And he loves it, and he loves her. I have to watch him all the time so he won't abduct her and keep her. 
and, and, but she ministers to him that way. She does a good work in that way. You know, or it's um, maybe they need help with something. Uh, we've had a widow's ministry. We go to widow's homes at times, and, and I can remember going to some, and they, you know, they didn't know how to do anything, or they were too fragile to do it. They had a busted screen door. You fix the screen door. They got a broken window. You replace the glass in the window. Those things like that, those are service. Those are good works. Those are the things that Christ wants us to do and do in abundance. Well, what does it mean for you today? So you're like, Larry, you came in here and I was feeling pretty good. And then you told me I was a child of wrath and uh, it was really negative. And the reason to do it is this. First of all, if you've not come to Christ, I don't want to lead you on to think you're okay because you're not. You are what Paul says in this passage, all of us used to be, and you need to come to Christ to avoid God's wrath and, and being separated from him for eternity. But if you are a believer, you have a great thing to celebrate and to enjoy that you used to be a child of wrath, and now you're a child of God. You used to be waiting for judgment, and now you're waiting for blessings, and you have fellowship with God, and those are things to be happy about. Now, life throws you lots of curves. I hate to tell you college students that, <clears throat> but even if you get that great education at TCU, bad things will happen along the way in your life. People that you know will die. People will disappoint you. Uh, you know, jobs will go away. Money might get drained away. This doesn't make you want to live, does it? But what you focus on is that no matter what happens in that, the love of Christ is poured out on you in abundance. And that's something for you to enjoy and celebrate. And, and you know, we need to, we need to be more joyful. There, there's too much complaining, there's too much unhappiness, too much anxiety, too much being ill at ease that should be replaced by joy and by gratitude. Uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't always want to go to church when I was a kid. You know, I ran around half naked all week long with a pair of boxer shorts playing in the neighborhood. And then on Sunday, they wanted me to wear a starch shirt and a bow tie. A clip-on bow tie, but nonetheless, bow tie. And I didn't want to do that. But because my parents did that, the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus was real to me. And as I grew and matured and understand more, I became so very grateful that I had that. And maybe you didn't have that. Maybe you came here to college and you got saved. Be grateful for that. And be grateful that you're with a community of believers that love the Lord and want to love each other and express that. And lastly, look for good works that you can do. Look for ways that you can serve each other, that you can serve the people around you, and that uh, you can show the love of Christ to and the work of Christ. So I'm gonna ask the band to come up here and, and <clears throat> play a song for us. And I want us to worship the Lord in a spirit of thankfulness, in a spirit of joy for what he's done for us, and also a spirit and time of prayer. If you're here with somebody you know is not a believer, and then a time of contemplation for you, if you in fact have not come to Christ, that you would think about that today 
and I ask the Lord to save you so that you can come into his kingdom and experience this joy that we should have.